This is a place where people still believe in spirits and turn to shamans for advice. At the same time, Buddhism here is widely practiced. People here believe in miracles just as much as they do in the powers of science. This is a land where time seems to have come to a standstill. Twenty-six thousand square kilometers of mountains, rivers, and virgin forests. Humans are a rare sight here. The Akinski district is situated in Buryatia's southwest, close to the border with Mongolia. It is one of Russia's most sparsely populated areas. Only five thousand people live in a valley overshadowed by the Sayan Mountains. Most of them are Soyots. Their nomadic ancestors settled here hundreds of years ago. There is just one road that leads to the faraway region, which was only commissioned in 1993. However, numerous mountain streams often flood it, making travel impossible. Before setting out on a journey, locals turn to shamans for help. Badmar Dondakov wants to see his brother, who tends a herd of yaks high in the mountains. He believes a shamanic ritual will ward off any dangers during the long trip. This is the right place for rituals. As you can see, three rivers meet here. The number three symbolizes life, spirituality, and power. Here, rituals quickly purify people. Water absorbs bad energy to produce a sense of calm and gives an aura of protection. At the other end of Buryatia, a short distance from the republic's capital Ulan Ude. Several men are about to be ordained as shamans. The ritual will last three days. The would-be shamans will be almost entirely deprived of sleep and food. They will go into a state of trance to appeal to the spirits of their ancestors. We're nomadic people, and therefore the initiations used to be held where the community happened to be at the time. But today there's a process of globalization going on. We've set up a religious organization of shamans. This is where the initiations are performed now. Boris is an entrepreneur. He will be among the initiated. It will be the most important day of his life. Boris knows there have been several outstanding shamans among his ancestors. So he has no other choice but to become one himself. After the ritual, he will be a healer, an advisor, and a teacher for many. Only people who have suffered from disease can be shamans. It's called shaman sickness. Each clan is supposed to have a line of shamanic succession. The ability to talk with the spirits is handed down from generation to generation. The initiation ceremony went off without a hitch. The spirits have allowed Boris to attend the Surbahan Festival of Shamans. On the way to the festival, the novice shaman explains what his ancestors' religion means to the people. The Buryats always trusted their ancestors. Each clan had a patron saint in the person of a shaman. The Buryats worship only their ancestors. Here we pray for Buryats and everyone else living here, not just for ourselves. In our prayers, we ask for good fortune and wealth. The Surbahan festival is held on the Five Fingers Plateau. Last night, people gathered around a sculpture in the form of a hand pointing to the sky. The monument is believed to have been erected by ancient inhabitants of this land. 
They do look like five fingers sticking out of the ground. People say the other palm is located somewhere in Mongolia. In early summer, shamans began their rituals with a plea for people's well-being. I come here for the sake of my family's prosperity. At Ivolginsky Datsan, Buryatia's major Buddhist monastery, monks rise early in the morning. Sokto has to be up for the first prayer at 7 a.m. The monks lead a reclusive life and barely venture outside. The monastery's 170 inhabitants follow a very strict daily routine. Only lunch and prayers interrupt the activities at the Buddhist monastery. There is a Buddhist university in the Datsan. Nearly 200 monks attend it. Monastic life is very simple. There are several monks to a room. Students from the university live in this small building. This is my bed. Third-year students also live here. There is also a room for the teacher. I found it difficult to adapt to the monastery's austere way of life, but you get used to it with the passage of time. The routine becomes part of your life. Sokto differs from his fellow students in many ways. Most monks begin practicing Buddhism from a young age. Sokto was well into his 30s before he decided to take it up, exchanging his shirt and tie for the crimson robe of a monk. I became disenchanted with conventional life. I realized that it would get me nowhere. That is when I decided to take the spiritual path. For the layman, Buddhism is just a religion. But for people who want to move forward and study the teaching in earnest, it is a boundless science. It is almost impossible to comprehend all of it, even if you spend a lifetime studying. Ivolginsky Datsan is considered one of the key spiritual centers of contemporary Buddhism in Russia. Hundreds of pilgrims come here every day. To begin with, they go through a special ritual. They need to spin Buddhist drums as they make several rounds of the Datsan. Each of the drums contains thousands of sheets of paper with prayers inscribed on them. It is believed if you spin a drum once, you have to read all the prayers in it. This simple method may improve your karma, which Buddhists believe affect the chances of reincarnation. Baikal, the world's deepest lake. Local tribes worshipped it long before the arrival of Russian colonists. Yevgeny Klepikov is in the tourist trade, a popular business here. He has explored every nook on the shores of the Great Lake. Baguzin Bay is one of the most beautiful spots around Baikal. It is famous for its sandy beaches and a spectacular view of the St. Nose Peninsula. From here, you get a good view of the St. Nose Peninsula and Mount Markov with its snowy top. The snow is still there even though it is the month of June now. The beach is about 30 kilometers long. It's the longest beach on Baikal. This time, Yevgeny has organized a bike tour. He will take a group of young tourists to the most sacred and mystical sites in the vicinity of Baikal. The starting point is near the St. Nose Peninsula. This land is covered in tall mountains and thick forests. In the old days, Buryats revered it as one of their most sacred sites. Rituals were performed on the peninsula and the most respected shamans were buried here. This place is charged with enormous energy. It gives people strength throughout the journey. Such excursions are becoming increasingly popular. 
Tourists like to choose routes that pass through the so-called places of spiritual energy. Many of them can be found in Buryatia. Another point of interest is in the valley of Baguzin River. The area is often called the Suvinsky Stone Castle because of its resemblance to the Gothic architecture of medieval Europe. One theory suggests that the mountains were the last outpost of the Berger Mongols, who inhabited the valley in ancient times. Legend has it that they are home to spirits of the wind. This is a wind-swept place. Locals used to think that the eagles flying over the valley were in fact the souls of shamans. In the Okinsky district on the other side of Buryatia, Badma Dondakov is going up to see his brother. On his way, he will pass by a sacred place. Whenever Badma passes by, he stops and bows to it before pleading to his ancestors to grant him good luck during his long journey. Meanwhile, Badma's brother Bulat and his wife are treating yak skins. Soyots use them to make clothing, footwear and harnesses. This technique is thousands of years old. Locals still prefer homemade things. My mother taught me the skill. That's how my parents always did it. Homemade things are of better quality. As soon as they stretch the skin and suspend it from stakes, they make a small fire to smoke it thoroughly. They put fir cones and juniper into the fire. This gives yak skin the necessary firmness and color. For the skin to get a good coloring, it is smoked for 30 minutes. Then it is turned over and smoked from the other side. As a result, the skin turns orange. Bulat hasn't seen his brother for half a year. Like their ancestors, Soyots spend most of their lives in temporary camps. In winter, they go downhill to be closer to the rivers. In summer, they use the passes to reach pastures up in the mountains. There are no roads here. To get here, his elder brother will have to cross several fast-flowing mountain streams. Bulat asks local spirits for help and offers them a sacrifice in the form of several drops of fresh milk. Ivan Chulkov visits Ivolginsky Datsan almost every month. Tragedy struck his family two years ago when his daughter was seriously injured after her husband shot her in a fit of jealousy. The bullet had entered her temple and exited from the back of her head. Doctors told me the injury was fatal and that she might die within minutes. There was nothing my wife and I could do about him. I sent my wife to hospital, expecting her to bring the body back here. Ivan had never been a follower of Buddhism, but he visited Ivolginsky Tatsan on the advice of a woman he knew. There he was advised to pray in front of the undecaying body of Dashi Dorjo Itigilov, a Buryat Buddhist Lama. Several Buddhist lamas gathered on a mountainous plateau near Ulan Ude in September 2002. They were looking for the resting place of Itigilov because 75 years ago he himself requested that he should be exhumed on that date. 
The cedar sarcophagus was at a depth of 1.2 meters. The body of Dashi Dorjoy Tugilov was in a lotus position. It was examined on September 11. Three medical physiologists, myself, and top Buddhist leaders attended the ceremony. The Lama's body showed no signs of decomposition. There was a sense that he had just fallen asleep. Besides, his body was warm. Its temperature was 36.6 degrees. Local scientists couldn't work out why the Lama had not decomposed. So the body was sent to Moscow for further analysis. The findings of that investigation were unexpected. Moscow scientists found no sign of surgery on the man's body after analyzing samples of hair and nails. They confirmed that both belonged to a living man. Itigilov's body was brought to Ivelginsky Datsan in a transparent sarcophagus. This unique footage was filmed a year later. After that, journalists were not allowed to take pictures of the undecaying body. Ivan Chulkov only spent about half an hour face to face with the so-called imperishable Lama, but those 30 minutes changed his life forever. I was there when the Lama was brought into the temple. I was told to ask him questions and just communicate with him. He responded with a nod and facial expressions. The nagging thought I had at the time was this. I just want my daughter to be alive, whatever happens. He nodded at me, and instantly I knew she wouldn't die. I really thought I was going mad. My daughter suddenly came out of a coma when I was here. That was at 1 p.m. The doctor said it had been a very close shave, that she must have been born under a lucky star. News of the miraculous recovery of Ivan's daughter spread quickly across Buratia and far beyond. Pilgrims flocked to Ivolginsky Datsan. The number of visitors coming to the temple housing the imperishable body has since been limited. Now access to Dashi Dorjo Itigilov is restricted to eight times a year. Visitors are allowed to enter the temple during major Buddhist holidays. All the participants have gathered for the Surbachan festival. For the first time, Boris is going to pray together with revered shamans. On the behalf of all Buryats, 20 men will plead to local spirits and their own ancestors to grant them good luck and wealth. Like all shamans, Boris has gone through the hardships of a shaman's life. He suffered from disease. He found no place for himself either in society or in his inner self. When he found out that powerful shamans had been in his clan, he turned to a teacher, and that's when his spiritual and human elements merged into harmony. Every shaman must wear a special ritual robe. Each element of it is charged with particular symbolism. You take this cap, for example. It's underneath the shaman's crown. This thing overshadows his eyes. Why is that? It's because the spirits descending from above are not supposed to see human eyes. They can scare them away. At the beginning of the ritual, the shamans summon local spirits to offer them gifts, sweets and vodka. The ritual has remained unchanged over scores of generations. Similar sounds reverberated over the Five Fingers Plateau a thousand years ago. As you can see, the five-fingered sculpture is somewhat higher than where we are. People have believed since the olden days that when you pray by this stone, the sculpture pleads with the supreme gods and the father of the eternal blue sky on your behalf, asking them to grant you well-being and good luck in all your undertakings. The next stop for the cyclists is at a stone garden. Large rocks going back to the Ice Age are scattered over a vast area. 
locals regard the place as something more than just a landmark. They believe spirits live here. Every traveller is supposed to make a symbolic sacrifice, a few drops of milk or small change. The cyclists travelling around Buryatia's holy places finally arrive at the highlight of their itinerary, the temple of the Buddhist goddess Yanjima. Hello and welcome. Let us go to the temple. First of all, you need to walk around the temple, enter it to pray, and only then will we go to the stone. This is Buryatia's second most popular place for pilgrimage after the evil Ginsky Datsan. Yanjima is regarded as the patron saint of motherhood and children. She is one of the most revered goddesses in Buryatia. Many women come here in the hope of increasing their fertility. One case in point is a woman from a neighboring village. She was an atheist. If they had asked her three years ago if she had faith in any religion, including Buddhism, she would have said no. The problem was that she was already 40 and had no success in getting pregnant. But after she visited Yanjima in this holy place, she gave birth to a daughter. Now the girl is one year old. Anyone wishing to ask Yanjima for help must take a narrow path uphill. Legend has it that the Republic's current chief Buddhist was meditating when the goddess Yanjima appeared before him. She told him to look for her image in this valley. Several months later, monks discovered a stone bearing the image of a dancing girl. Now it is time for the travelers to appeal to the Buddhist goddess. Above all else, you should make your personal pleas most sincerely, from the bottom of your hearts. How you do it, either on your knees, lying on the ground or standing, makes no difference, as long as you have faith in her. In the Okinski district, Badmar Dondokov is about to complete his journey, but one last obstacle is in his way. The remains of an ancient lava plain from two extinct volcanoes stretch for 70 kilometers of scorched earth and rock. The valley of volcanoes is some 50 kilometers from here. They last erupted 10 or 12,000 years ago. At last, the long trip comes to an end. Badma meets his younger brother, Bulat. They will spend several weeks together tending the herd. The Soyots hope that this valley tucked away in the mountains will allow them to maintain the way of life handed down from their ancestors. I have lived here since I was a child. What's the point of moving elsewhere? I came back from my stint in the army and have been tending yaks since, just like my father and grandfather did. My family sells meat and milk for a living. We earn quite enough. Sometimes I go hunting. I don't think I need anything more. When the sun reaches its zenith, 20 shamans begin praying together by the five-fingered stone sculpture. To start with, they ask local spirits to accept their prayers and gifts. The ceremony is accompanied by the constant drumming of tambourines. The tambourine is the shaman's principal instrument that allows him to move between the human world and the spirit world. The critical moment arrives when the shamans take turn in going into a state of trance. Buryats believe that at such moments, shamans are no longer themselves. 
Their bodies have been taken over by the spirits of their ancestors. At first you feel dizzy, then your vision is blurred and you become lost in thought. When you open your eyes you see the people around you, but you barely remember what's gone on before. I can't explain it. When you go into a state of trance, you ask your ancestors to use you as a medium to talk to others. The ritual culminates in a symbolic sacrifice to the sky. Young trees are tossed into a bonfire to make smoke. When the fire goes out, an eagle appears over the Five Fingers Plateau. The sacrifice has been accepted and their prayers heeded. The next year will be a good one for the land where time has come to a standstill. The sun sets early in Siberia, at dusk by Erin Chinov, one of the most celebrated and experienced shamans east of Lake Baikal, begins his shamanic rituals. Today's ritual is designed to invoke the spirit's healing abilities and thank them for their powers. At one point during the ritual, a spirit penetrating Bayer's body is expected to help the shaman deal with people's issues as well as heal them. When a shaman becomes aware of the onset of the state of trance, he puts on a cap that covers his eyes. The cap protects the shaman from evil spirits and safeguards the onlookers. According to popular belief, ordinary people are not supposed to see the shaman's eyes at such moments because this might cause them harm. Then the shaman's crown comes into play. This headgear is fashioned out of iron and has horns on top. Shamans say that as soon as the invoked spirit makes its appearance in the form of a cloud, the horns help guide the spirit into the shaman's body. As the drumbeat quickens, the nervous tension of the people gathered in the yurt quickly begins to peak. Then the drum abruptly falls silent. The shaman falls to the floor and begins spinning on it. This means that the spirit has entered his body. Video cameras are switched off. Filming a shaman in this state poses a threat to him and his audience. Work at the Russian Academy of Sciences is drawing to a close. Valentina Haritonova, head of the unit for the study of shamanism, is inspecting the new exhibits displayed at the Institute's Ethnographic Museum. They have been supplied by scientists returning from this year's field expeditions. Valentina has spent years studying humans' extrasensory and extrasensitive potential. Shamanic rituals differ depending on the ethnicity of the shamans. Each ethnic group has its own interpretation of the spirits. In this particular case, the spirit penetrates a shaman's body in a somewhat unusual way. To all appearances, the shaman's mind undergoes a change which is the result of deep immersion. He narrows his soul, as it were, and sublimates his energizing powers. The soul leaves the body at some point to make room for the spirit. It is as though the spirit occupies the shaman's body while his soul leaves it. Shamans are a rare and unusual sight in Chelyabinsk, a major industrial city in the Urals. Even so, a shaman by the name of Tjurgen Kam has managed to balance shamanism with life in the big city. He is the latest representative of a clan of shamans spanning seven generations. For centuries, Siberians have become shamans when called upon by the spirits. Apart from his spiritual activities, Tjurgen Kam practices music. In the morning, he goes to his small studio in central Chelyabinsk when not performing his duties as a shaman. At the entrance to the small backyard, there is an oba, a sanctuary for the spirits who are regarded as the local masters. Chirgen prays to them and offers them gifts. Shamans highly value their support. 
Tamir is a friend of Chögen. He is a soloist at the local opera house. It took the two men a great deal of effort and time before they found a unique musical niche. Since then, they have been creating a new trend in club house music. Folk instruments in combination with throat singing against an electronic background. The musicians feel it is now too late to develop a taste for folklore in young people. Consequently, they are trying to pave the way for them to traditional music through modern sounds. When you find yourself in a trance during a ritual, you suffer spiritually, so to speak. Music helps me withdraw from that state. I can't set shamanism and music apart. I can't focus only on music or shamanism alone. I distance myself from music each time I perform a ritual and vice versa. The resulting symbiosis helps me live life to the full rather than eke out an existence. The morin hur is their instrument of choice. In the Mongolian language, morin means horse, while hur means violin. Quite often this instrument is referred to simply as the horse's fiddle. Each violin bears a horse's head, symbolizing that the instrument is a living creature. The strings are traditionally made of horsetail. Two strings symbolize yin and yang, manhood and womanhood. For that reason, one of them is made of the hair of a stallion. The hair of a mare is used to make the other. The two strings produce a unique harmony. Legend has it that once upon a time there was an invincible epic hero who had a winged horse. When he fell asleep, enemies chopped off his horse's wings. The wingless horse died. The hero commemorated him by using his hair, skin and bones to make the first Morin Hur. As soon as he started playing the instrument, he recognized the voice of his dear horse. As they strum their songs on a Morin Hur, Mongols, Buryats and Tuvinians dedicate them to their beloved steeds. Throat singing begins here, in the diaphragm. Each time I try to produce the sound, I strain my belly to send it upwards. I make my vocal cords vibrate a little. The result is something like a roar. I believe that shamans were the first to practice throat singing. It's because this sort of sound wards off evil spirits, which are trying to take control of sick people. Bayerin Chinov regularly hosts his patients in his little house situated close to the shaman's yurt. Many of them live hundreds of kilometers away. What's wrong? There isn't much health in me anymore. And in general, there is something wrong with my life. What's your name? Svetlana. When were you born? 1963. Have you had headaches? Yes. When did you first feel them? Not long ago, as far as I can tell. When were your x-ray lost? Last spring. Please give me any number between 0 and 12. 6. 4th and 5th vertebrae. Your body's cold energy is blocked by the neck bone. Your kidneys and other urogenital organs are not in the best shape either. But to begin with, you need to have your neck bone fixed. You'll need an X-ray photograph of it together with a description. I've brought some vodka I kept at home, like you told me to do. Okay, I'll have a look. Where was your mother born? Somewhere in the Kuban region. Were there any priests among your forefathers in the maternal line? They were Cossacks convicts. I think they were churchgoers anyway. Would you say that men in the maternal line die early? Yes, they die earlier than women do. Your great-grandmother lost an icon protecting your clan's males. Discuss the matter with the priest. I suggest you have the icon restored and consecrated. It will help you in your life. Of course, we weren't born at the right time to believe in all that. But I am telling you that if you keep the icon in your household, 
Your son might father four boys and two girls. Bayerin Chinov finishes consulting his patients late at night. His followers, meanwhile, get ready for a ritual to lift the curse that has weighed heavily on the men of a Buryat clan for many years. The ritual's principal target is a 17-year-old boy, the youngest of the clan's males. According to the shamans, the spirits imposed the curse in Mongolia when one of the boy's ancestors broke a holy birch tree many years ago. Birch trees cut down beforehand have been put in the ground near the shaman's yurt as a sign of people's request for forgiveness. For several hours, these people will perform sophisticated rituals by festooning the trees with ribbons and sacred objects, wetted in milk and fumigated with fragrant juniper smoke. Take off your cap, go down on your knees to the sound of the drumbeat. Turn around clockwise. Run around the trees and stand behind them. Run around the trees three times. Now circle the cup three times. Down on your knees here. Pick up the grass from the ground, put it in the cup and drink it. People dig up the birch trees and again pray to the spirits, asking them to accept their gifts as an atonement for a tree desecrated a long time ago. The procession then heads to the sacrificial bonfires in the steppe. All the so-called white food, like bread, cakes, cookies, butter and cheese, is tossed into the fire. Milk and vodka, too, are considered offerings to the spirits. The flames of another bonfire lick birch trees decorated with multicoloured ribbons. All this has to be reduced to ashes if the spirits are to meet the people's requests. The shamans need to have extraordinary skill. They need to display a super-sensitive reaction and enormous powers to influence people. The big question is how they do it. Scientists may have to rack their brains over the problem for a long time to come. The most difficult part of it is explaining it in scientific terms. As an ethnologist and psychologist, I can say that most of these things have a psychotherapeutic effect. In this sense, any shaman is an excellent psychologist and psychotherapist. Being a traditional shaman in a city is a difficult task. Sometimes Chögen Kam jokingly refers to himself as a degraded shaman because he can't afford to drop out of the fast tempo of modern-day civilization. But whenever the opportunity presents itself, he heads for the holy glade he set up in the forest. Before entering the forest, the shaman pauses before a birch tree, which is supposed to protect his glade from intruders. You can't just walk past this place. You should give the spirits a hadak. It's a blue scarf that takes your wishes and prayers to the sky. Shamanism is not an entirely native religion in Chelyabinsk. That's why I made a point of looking for such places. When I was performing a ritual, the spirits told me to come here. This birch tree has four trunks sharing one root. This is the holiest and most revered place. As for the birch tree, it belongs to a higher world. Although the shamanic ritual continues well into the night, Bayerin Chinov gets up early in the morning, as always. He wants to make sure he has a good supply of firewood before the onset of winter. Winters in the Aginsk steppe can be bitterly cold. I first started seeing my ancestors when I was still a child, about the same age as my grandson is now. I began studying shamanism around 1988. My first guru was Tibugmit a woman who lived here in the Ginsk district. She subjected me to eight old-style rituals, which no one else practiced at the time. After she died, I went to Mongolia, where I found another guru. It was some time later that spirits began entering me. 
The fact is that each generation of my ancestors included talented shamans, even all the way back to the twelfth generation of paternal relatives. And so the spirits began entering me to see whether I had a mark identifying me as a shaman. Bayerin Chinov is a successful farmer as well as a shaman. He has spent a lifetime working on a farm. When he could afford to buy a plot of land, he did so without hesitation. It is a place where several generations of maternal relatives have been buried. There he built a shaman's yurt and started a farm. Shamanism and farming together is not an easy task, and Bayer has to work hard. He can't remember when he last had a day of rest, but he considers himself a happy man. Despite the rigors, he now has more than 150 sheep and goats. Bayer is even playing with the idea of buying a felt-making machine. Bayer's farm was ravaged several years ago by fire, but even that never stopped him from abandoning the land of his ancestors. Building a new house took him a lot of effort. He set up a serge, a traditional Buryat tethering post near his house. It indicates that this land has an owner. A grand gathering of Bayer's followers is scheduled for noon. Yevgeny Belakrylov lives near the border with China and has covered 300 kilometers in order to see his guru. I revealed some talent when I was still a child, but I thought everybody could do what I could. When I was 33 years of age, something began tormenting me. I decided to give vent to my gift. I turned to people I knew, priests and lamas. The lamas made some calculations and told me that my ancestors were Buryat shamans. They also suggested I find a guru for myself. At that time, I didn't have an idea who shamans were. I had only seen some in films. I had serious doubts about my future when I came here. After all, I was a 33-year-old Christian Russian. But I thought I must respond to the call of my ancestors for the sake of the children and their future. Now it was my turn to do the work. Today, shamans get together to discuss current issues, share plans for the coming week, and find out details about the journey they are going to make soon. Once the meeting is over, they will set out on a journey to a mountain that shamans regard as a holy place. A ritual will be performed there. As always, Bayer in Chinov is happy to see his followers. All of them have taken different paths before they face the guru. Black shamans communicate with the spirits. They are to the right of Bayer. Their main tool is the tambourine. White shamans establish contact with the gods. They are to the left of Bayer. Their hands rest on ritual canes with bells. Bayer in Chinov was the first to begin reviving shamanism beyond Lake Baikal after a long period of oblivion. During the first Russian Congress for the study of shamanism, Bayer met with Michael Harner, the legendary American anthropologist and organizer of the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. Harner was so impressed by Bayer's talent that later his foundation awarded the Siberian shaman the title of living treasure of shamanism. Now that the gathering is over, the shamans are about to set out on a pilgrimage to Mount Sakhanai. They will cover at least a hundred kilometers through lowlands, mountain passes and heavy-going forest paths. None of Bayer Rinchinov's followers has been here before. This is one of the most private places that give the guru his shamanic powers. It has been considered one of the sacraments of Buryat shamanism for a very long time. A tall cliff bears what look like two giant palms carved out of rock. Shamanic legend insists that shamans will live as long as these ten fingers are there. The legendary female shaman, Yenjima, is buried on the opposite side of the slope. The grave of Zarin Bo, a great shaman who went through all nine stages of the initiation procedure, is found nearby. They say that in the old days, such shamans merged with a spirit during a ritual to control the weather, travel over long distances, or even levitate by hovering over the birch trees. After a ceremony, Bayer and two aides go to the base of the giant palms. Weaker and less experienced shamans are barred from here, and with good reason. This area's spirit is too powerful. At long last, the Chelyabinsk shaman Turgen Kham has reached the sacred glade. Here, in the thick of a forest, he has built a set of ritual installations with his own hands. 
In summertime, the season packed with shamanic rituals, Chögen stays in a tent just outside the glade for weeks on end. The spirits receive food in this special place. Here we light a bonfire made of a certain number of branches. For example, seven layers of branches symbolize a lower world. A ritual to exorcise the souls of sick people requires seven such layers. The sick person uses a spoon to offer the spirits whatever is in the bowl he holds in his hands as the shaman sings to invoke them. When there is milk in the bowl, the sick person's thoughts are focused on what he could get in return. He might ask the spirits to get rid of his ailments, give him luck or wish him a good journey. Shamans regard the place where bonfires are lit as sacred. Tjurgen comes here each year before the onset of winter to clean it up and remove the ashes left over from the summertime rituals. After the cleansing procedure, Tjurgen spreads a mixture of rice and beads across the clean spot. In this way, the shaman asks the earth and local spirits to forgive him for the inconvenience. Before he is about to leave the forest, Chögen collects fir tree branches and carefully covers the Ongon with them. The Ongon is an image of the Taiga's ruler, carved out of a pine trunk. The symbol of a spirit is supposed to guard the glade against intruders. We see to it that he keeps warm in winter. We don't want him to freeze, we want him to stand on guard. He never sleeps unlike other spirits. They rise to the sky to live there until the arrival of spring. Modern-day scientists have not given up their quest to understand what happens to shamans when they are in contact with the spirits. They want to know whether shamanism is not some sort of myth created by a group of mentally imbalanced people. Research was done several years ago at both the Institute of Neurophysiology and Higher Nervous Activity and the Institute for Ethnology and Anthropology at the Russian Academy of Sciences. Initially, so-called neo-shamans and urban shamans were involved in those special experiments. Neo-shamans represented a new generation of shamanic tradition. Here is a demonstration of an experiment in the presence of a large audience. These experts studying shamanism represent a number of countries. For a start, instruments are attached to the body of a neo-shaman. They will record the state of his blood vessels. This somewhat odd device on his head is a special cap designed by one of our offices. A shaman's creative act is an act of affectation. That is to say, he needs to work himself up into a state of ecstasy. After that, all processes inside his brain slow down, especially those connected with speech. Then the brain begins functioning in a fashion which is not characteristic of its normal activity. In other words, the man activates the brain's right hemisphere particularly its frontal lobes, which are responsible for his creative thinking. Shamans put themselves in a state where they see a pattern of personages. They map out a program allowing the existence of such personages, model them and picture them in their mind's eye. It might be said that later the personages overpower the shamans. Shamans say, however, the key thing is not to allow the personages to gain the upper hand on them. Churgan Kam, the shaman in Chelyabinsk, is in for a hectic day. He will travel 500 kilometers from Chelyabinsk to Arkaim, the site of the ruins of a legendary town across the boundary separating Europe from Asia, to perform a shamanic ritual near the site of an ancient settlement. In recent years, Arkaim has become popular with followers of all esoteric schools. They believe that this is the site of the world's largest geological rupture. Some are even confident the mountain where Tjurgen is going to perform the ritual is actually a volcano that erupted millions of years ago. But Tjurgen takes a skeptical view of those theories. He is more interested in the energy generated at the juncture of Europe and Asia. He will try to evoke the local spirits here. His hope is that they will help resolve a problem affecting a sick man. 
The ritual follows a standard scenario. The shaman gradually enters a trance. The tambourine's rhythmic tempo quickens, and the shaman's movements become ever more abrupt and jerky. The tambourine falls silent. The shaman writhes with convulsions. This means that a spirit has entered him. As a rule, the shaman knows which spirit he is invoking and what he can expect of it. This time, however, something has gone wrong. Blood begins trickling from the shaman's mouth. His sagging legs hardly support him as he limps around the bonfire, producing incomprehensible sounds or roaring like a beast. Somebody has fainted. Everybody becomes jittery. No contact with the spirit is likely to take place today. The tension dies down a few minutes later when a spirit in the shape of a shaman accepts a gift and begins gesturing as he squats near the sick man. Soon he roars again and vanishes in the dark. Soon Tjurgen is found lying face down in the snow. He has absolutely no idea of what happened to him only a short while ago. Even so, the ritual has to go on. A spade with a handful of red-hot coals taken from the bonfire is moved close to the shaman's face. As the sick man looks on, the shaman grabs the coals, shoves them into his mouth and chews them and spits them out into the snow. How many ailments have been defeated in today's ritual depends on the number of coals chewed by the shaman. Shortly before dawn, Turgen manages to overcome his lethargy to go to Mount Shamanka to thank the local spirits and pray to the sun, Mother Earth, and above all else, the eternal blue sky. This is how Buryat epic literature describes it. The eternal blue sky is without beginning or end. It moves without the support of limbs. It brings peace, welfare and happiness to the land below. It prevents war and disease and tames fire and floods. It is the lord of earth and water, multiplying all that exists. <laughs>